Hello and welcome to Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. Full disclosure, I'm not feeling well today, so my voice will not sound like normal. But we want to weather through this because this is a very important show. Today, we, doc we commemorate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we're recording this on King Holiday. We've got three very special guests that will allow us to just explore the idea of the dream living on uh, through three different perspectives. One of the things that we want to discuss today is the, the rise of the HBCU in terms of its, its public profile uh, because of people like Stacey Abrams, who was a Spelman alum. And as you think about Dr. King, who is a Morehouse alum, the HBCU world is front and center right now. And it's always had a very historical uh, place in not just the African-American history, but in American history. But now I think it's spot on more than ever. We've never had a president or a vice president graduate from an HBCU and now enter um, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. And Vice President-elect Kamala Harris is a Howard University graduate. And so we want to talk a little bit about her legacy, her legacy as a, a member of the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority as well. And we want to talk about the legacy of Dr. King, not just as a pastor, but as someone who did immense community work and, and a lot of work for human rights. So three guests will help us unpack this. The first is Ms. Lynn Twilly Darby, who was the president of Munu, uh, Munu Omega Chapter of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. <clears throat> uh, Dr. Dr. Lopez Matthews, PhD, digital librarian and historian from Howard University. And Dr. Kefion Shepard, uh, who is the pastor of Word of Life Fellowship Center, who, is also, who also holds the title of bishop. So we want to start with uh, Lynn. Lynn, thank you for coming on today. Your sorority is um, the oldest, um, well, I'll let you tell the story. The fact that um, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris is one of your sores is something that has been spoken about at great length uh, throughout this country. And it's a very fascinating story. She brings so many narratives together. But upon hearing that, I think many people were excited to, just to see this, this sorority activated um, for this presidential election because there's such a story tradition for the women of the sorority and their, their role in community. Tell us a little bit about the sorority first and for, foremost. Well, um, let me thank you for having me today, Marcus, mm -hmm. but our organization, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated was founded on the campus of Howard, Howard University, University just a couple of days ago, um, January 15th, 1908. And our organization uh, was founded by women who were one generation removed from slavery, who had this vision. Our visionary is Ethel Hedgeman Lau, who um, came up with the idea of having a sorority that would be of service to all mankind. And then our perpetuity was sealed by our incorporator, uh, Nellie Quander. And so we were founded to be of service, especially um, to what was then called the colored community. Um, but our purpose is to uplift the African-American community in particular and to be of service to all mankind. Um, when we think about how Kamala has risen through the ranks and with us being the first and the oldest Greek-lettered organization founded by women of color, um, she's just following in our founder's footsteps because she's always been a first. If you think about mm -hmm. um, her rise in politics, I mean, she was the first um, district attorney. 
um, in, um, in her community and then the first attorney general. And now she has ascended, and I should say first attorney general for the state of California. Mm -hmm. And now she has ascended to the ranks of um, vice president-elect um, Kamala Harris. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're also very proud because our sisterhood is about excellence. And um, our current international president, Dr. Glenda Glover, her administration's um, theme for the um, next couple of years is exemplifying excellence um, through service. So that's where we are. And um, indeed, we are proud. Mm. So I wanted to localize this a bit because I've enjoyed personally listening to uh, members of this sisterhood all over the country as they've been interviewed about, uh, as you pointed out, the rise of Kamala Harris into this incoming role. Uh, let us peek behind the curtain with you and your sisters locally just to touch. Give us a sense of what that conversation sounded like amongst yourselves when the announcement was made that she would be the running mate of uh, President-elect Joe Biden and your reaction when they actually won the election. So locally, um, you know, we have a group me chat and the group me chat started to light up. Um, and then, of course, my text messages started to light up. And, um, and then, you know, that also connected us with, um, you know, uh, members of the organization who are within the Northern Ohio, Western Pennsylvania cluster. And that started to light up. So there was a lot of euphoria, um, you know, we, we were proud, but let me, you know, also be inclusive because it was not just the ladies of Alpha Kappa Alpha mm -hmm. who were proud, but all of the members of the different sororities mm -hmm. um, who have also been very supportive and um, and all of the, you know, the fraternities have been supportive. So, mm -hmm. it, you know, while, you know, we are fortunate enough to have her as a member of our esteemed organization, all of those D9 organizations have been supported and they have been supportive and they are quite proud of this accomplishment. I'm glad you, know, you pointed. When, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay, and I was just gonna say, you know, that her ascension in essence is all of our ascension. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that because it was a video that went viral of black women from various sororities to stroll to the polls. And it was such a yes. sight to see these different sororities represented. And when you think about the black voter base and how African-American women overwhelmingly make the strongest part of the, the African-American voter base, has been such a strong force uh, educationally and economically throughout this country. To see that type of unity for a moment such as this, such as this, give us an, an idea of how you felt about that and why you felt it was important that they came together for an effort like that. Well, I want to dispel some of the myths that are out there that, you know, that we're all in competition with each other. And that's not the case. You know, we understand why we were founded and we were founded to bring good to our community. So there isn't this, um, you know, you know, this 
animosity that we have amongst us anyway. You know, mm -hmm. um, we are all college educated professional women in our respective communities. So there is a bond that we have. So I, I want to dispel the myth that we don't get along. Um, in Erie uh, in particular, um, you know, my, my sisters are made up of not only members of Alpha Kappa Alpha, but we respect you know, the women who make up Delta Sigma Theta sorority and those who make up Zeta Phi Beta mm -hmm. and those who make up um, Sigma Gamma Rho. So, you know, we are um, just as, they are just as proud of our accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, it's not our accomplishment per se, it's just that she happens to be a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha. And, you know, that sort of propels us into the limelight. But, you know, we are still being supported by those other um, women who make up the other D9 organizations. Mm -hmm. And as we celebrate Dr. King uh, holiday, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that Coretta Scott King was one of your sorors. And so that makes this moment yes, even that Coretta much Scott. more special because, and Dr. King was an AKA, your brother fraternity, if you will. And so this is a, a really special moment. And so I wanna close on this. 300,000 plus members, if I'm correct, of your sorority nationwide. It hasn't gone unnoticed that by and large, these are very successful women. What do you think lends itself to that culture of excellence? Because it's obvious when you look at the, the, the membership locally and abroad, and almost to a person when I meet sisters that are part of this, they are active in their communities, they're go-getters, they are finding large measures of success in their chosen fields. What is that attributed to in your opinion? Well, I think that for us, you know, we were founded on the basis of uplifting our community and not only doing that, but also, um, embracing our, our sisterhood as well. And, you know, we've sort of taken on what Dr. Dubois talked about, the, the whole talented tent piece. Um, and we are very much a part of his philosophy that the talented tent will, um, will, will uh, allow the, the community to, to rise up and, and to become productive and, and for us to gain economic freedom and political freedom. So, you know, we are an embodiment of that. Um, when we come together, um, you know, we're coming together not only to embrace our sisterhood, but also to make the communities in which we live better. Uh, we have targets that we focus on um, that, um, you know, we're looking at women's health and trying to educate and make people aware of the inadequacies in our medical healthcare system and to educate our women, especially mm -hmm. uh, women of color, about the issues, you know, breast cancer and those kinds of things. And, you know, one of our targets is also our economic legacy and making people aware of the importance of building that and mm -hmm. passing on generational wealth. So, you know, we've always tried to do those things that will propel us into the future, if you will and to making sure that we're bringing um, people along because it doesn't make sense for there to be just the talented 10th. Mm -hmm. You know, we need the majority of our community to be engaged in making um, this place and their own personal lives a better place in, in this world. Lynn Twilley Darby, thank you so much 
for all the work that your sorority's done. Uh, as a father of three daughters, thank you all for just the example that you set for young women of color throughout this entire country. It's an exciting time for you, an exciting time, as you pointed out, for the Divine Nine, and certainly an exciting time for the African-American community. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, God blessings to you all. All right, thank you. And so to continue on, as Lynn teed up this, this um, the conversation about um, Howard University, I'm sorry. So we go now to Dr. Lopez Matthews, who's a digital librarian and historian at Howard University. Uh, Dr. Matthews, thank you for coming on the show today. <clears throat> thank you for uh, inviting me. Okay. So first of all, tell us a little bit about your role at Howard University. So as a digital production librarian, I manage the digitization of historic records in the Moreland Spingarn Research Center. And so that involves digitizing, of course, the historic records, but also right. video and audio, and then making that available on our digital Howard institutional repository for the world to see. Mm -hmm. Howard University has uh, a very, again, very storied history, a lot of firsts, as Lynn pointed out, uh, from what I understand, Howard University, uh, just in terms of women, not just black women, the first woman to receive a medical degree, Howard University, the first woman to receive a law degree, Howard University. And you think about the, the different individuals that have walked those halls, the lion of legal justice, Thurgood Marshall, the best example of that. And, and obviously the role that Thurgood Marshall played on expanding the educational opportunities for African-Americans. And so here's a campus that already had story upon story upon story of, of cultural and societal excellence. And now you add this element to it in this newly um, soon to be elected or soon to be sworn in Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. Talk to me about just the buzz amongst the faculty and the students and everything else as this was starting to unfold. Well, everyone was excited, of course. You know, we're always proud of Howard graduates and Howard alumni who achieve success. You know, our motto is truth and service for the global community. And so we teach our students and we train our students that they should be you know, stewards of African-American culture, stewards of sort of providing uplift to the world. And so when we saw Kamala Harris sort of rise with Joe Biden, we were extremely excited. And with the election, everyone was extremely elated and excited. As a Howard graduate myself, I was actually in our Howard alumni meeting when the results were finally announced that oh, Saturday nice. morning. One just we had to stop the meeting because mm. no one was going to pay attention to the rest of the business because right. everyone got the alert on their phone and it was just all excitement and so you know just excitement to see another Howard alum mm -hmm. sort of achieve something on the national level mm -hmm. like you mentioned uh, Thurgood Marshall but Thurgood Marshall's mentor uh, Charles Hamilton Houston who was the architect of the Brown versus Board of Education mm -hmm. he was the dean of the uh, the dean of the School of Law at Howard. We also had uh, Doug Wilder, who was the first elected black governor, uh, Kasim Reed. We've had uh, a lot of sort of major players have come out of Howard. And so to see another one sort of rise on the national stage was 
elated. Mm. Yeah, th this is historic because obviously historical black colleges and universities have played a huge role in the African-American community. Dr. King, as I pointed out, Morehouse Man, and you go down the list, everyone from Jesse Jackson to Oprah Winfrey, and you get all of this black excellence coming from the hallowed halls of these traditional um, colleges started for the purpose of educating the children of former slaves in my own family, as, as it is in so many African-American families. I've spoken on several occasions about my great-grandmother, who was educated at Alcorn University as an educator, and she changed the educational trajectory of our family. And so there's a story for pretty much every family. Give us a sense of what the culture is like at Howard University and if you can even pepper that with some of the culture of historically black colleges and universities as well, just so as people are, are listening to the fact that um, this new vice president elect has gone to one of these storied universities, they get a sense of what it, what it plays out like and what it's like for students when they're on these type of campuses. Well, I think that uh, the atmosphere at Howard as it is at a lot of HBCUs is sort of an atmosphere of family, an atmosphere of responsibility because we understand that we are educating a generation of people who represent their race. And while it's not fair, we understand that that's the reality of what it is. And so you have to be prepared, you have to be ready. And we also realize that as a member of the African diaspora, I was gonna say African-American family, but at Howard in particular, we have a sort of full diversity of blackness there where you have black people from all over the world, we understand that, you know, we are all are one and we have a responsibility to each other. And so it's almost like a family where you know your professors, your professors are invested in you. They're invested in your success. They know your name. And so it's not as if you can just come there and go to class and disappear. Mm -hmm. Your professors know you and they're looking at you and they're following you like, okay, what do you, if you mess up, what are you doing? Where were you? Why weren't you here? And so sometimes students like that, sometimes they don't. But the HBCU atmosphere is one of camaraderie, friendship, but also education, mm -hmm. because we understand that our students have to be just as prepared, if not more so than students from other uh, universities, because they assume that because it is Black, that is not good enough. And that has been the assumption. And so HBCU graduates understand that we have to be excellent and we have to excel because we have to show that no, our schools are just as important, just as educational, and just as uh, sort of, they develop their students mm -hmm. just like any other university. Mm -hmm. And just because they're black, that doesn't mean that they are less than. So the perspective for individuals that come out of um, college campuses like this oftentimes has a profound impact on the work that they do I know obviously for Dr. King, Coretta Scott King, that was the case. In your opinion, what will it mean to have someone in the Oval Office sit, seated next to the, the highest office in the land with this perspective of this cultural rele relevance that she has brought with her from Howard University? How do you see that playing out on, on just her role as vice president? I think that it will provide the students with a sort of sense of pride because they get to see someone who has sat in the same chairs that they sat in, mm -hmm. who's been taught by sometimes the same teachers that they've been taught by because they're still there. 
And so I think for the students, it would give them a sense of pride. I think that for her, the values and the education that was instilled in her at Howard will shine through. And I think that that's what the world will see mm -hmm. because, you know, it doesn't leave you. It's still there. Mm -hmm. In 2020, there was, there's obviously been this huge reckoning when it comes to America and race. And it's been fascinating to see young people across the country stake their claim on this conversation and make their voices heard and hold the system, if you will, accountable. I would imagine it hasn't been any different amongst the students at Howard University. And so now you have that moment clashing with this moment. Give us the significance of that from, again, uh, the student's perspective, because now <clears throat> you go from raising your voices to having someone who understands your experience like directly as an African-American student. Talk about that a bit. You know, I think that one of the things that we have to remember is that students have been involved in the fight for equality and the fight for civil rights the entire time. Mm -hmm. I mean, Stokely Carmichael, uh, Kwame Ture, coined the phrase Black Power while he was a student at Howard. Sure did. And he led the Black Power movement. And so I think that students will kind of remain involved and... I'm glad that we're talking about this on Martin Luther King Day because he actually came to Howard twice to encourage the students to be active in the civil rights movement. Um, Marian Anderson, her concert on the Lincoln Memorial was that concert happened because of the fight of Howard students mm -hmm. who said that it wasn't fair that the that she was denied performing at Constitution Hall. And so I think that what's happening with the students today will just be a continuation of what they've always done. They're going to remain involved. They're going to be active. They're going to push for their rights. And seeing Kamala there, they'll also try to support her and her efforts at governing because it's going to be, you know, it's a tough road ahead. You know, they have to rebuild trust in our system. They have to deal with the pandemic. And they also have to deal with this sort of, the reemergence, well, not reemergence, but the amplification of white supremacy that we've seen mm -hmm. uh, towards the end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021. I appreciate the fact that you mentioned uh, Stokely Carmichael, not Stokely Carmichael, now known as Kwame Ture, because arguably when you look back at those days when young people, especially with the Vietnam War, young people in many, many ways held Dr. King accountable. Uh, outside of just appreciating him. Stokely Carmichael, I think, is at the top of that list. There's a fascinating exchange from the documentary Out of the Wilderness where Stokely Carmichael and Dr. King are actually disagree respectfully disagreeing about this whole concept of blackness and black power and everything. And it was, you know, one, refreshing to see Dr. King edify the voices of our young the way that he did instead of trying to suppress it. And, and I thought that was a, a great exchange to show. And again, on the campus of Howard University, coining that phrase, you know, black power. But when you look back at moments like this, you're absolutely right. Young people have always been at the center of um, everything going on, civil rights and things along those lines. And so, again, on, on the campus of Howard University, no different. And so the, the, the work of people like Kwame Ture that have come before the students now, how often do you get a chance to plug into alums like yourself, alums like Kwame Ture, um, to influence the students in a modern day setting? 
Um, I think that we try it as much as we can, try to bring it up, try to mention it, try to make sure that they understand that they are part of a legacy. You know, you're a part of this legacy and you have to reflect that. That's why you're here. You know, you're not here to just be a bump on a log or mm -hmm. you're not here just to sit in class. Nothing. You're here to learn. You're here to develop yourself as a person, you know, truth and service, as I said, is the motto of Howard. And so, you know, and I don't want to just, I mean, I'm mentioning Howard a lot because I'm from Howard, right. but this idea is present on every HBCU campus, mm -hmm. you know, because that is the nature of sort of how the African-American community itself has developed. You know, um, <clears throat> I always like to mention that, you know, African-American culture is one of the few things that actually developed in America. And we do have, you know, this sort of sense of community and this sense of responsibility for each other. And so the HBCU just becomes a microcosm of that. Uh, I graduated undergrad at Coppin State University in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. Really small college, uh, not really known, but you had that same kind of dynamic happening where you knew each other, you knew even the administration, they knew you because they saw you on campus. And if they saw you doing something you didn't need to do, they would say something to you. Mm -hmm. And so you understood that, you know, you were a family, that there was a responsibility that you carry as a person from that school. And so, so I think that um, that's what, you know, we instill in our young people. Mm -hmm. And that's why we try to hark back to those alumni who've been successful, you know. So the, the history of Howard University is at the epicenter of your occupational responsibilities, you know, in many ways at Howard yeah. University. When you are having, um, conversation over a table in your own personal life. You know, give us an idea of some of the historical facts about Howard that you personally are proud of and that you personally have been moved by or influenced by. You know, I think the involvement of Howard students with the uh, Brown versus Board of Education decision is something that makes me proud. I didn't really know how involved the faculty at Howard was with the Browns uh, case until I started working there. And I learned that they did work on it uh, in Douglas Hall. They worked on it in Founders Library where I work. The room that I go into uh, quite often, the browsing room, they practice their arguments there because that was the moot courtroom. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you realize, wow, you know, I'm at this place where so many historic figures existed, you know, like we have a, a bust of Gandhi in Founders Library that was given to us by Martin Luther King. Mm. And every once in a while I walk by and I look and I go, oh, wow, it was given to us by Martin Luther King, you know, or <clears throat> you sit in front of Crampton Auditorium and you think of the number of people who've spoken there. Like I've seen a picture of uh, W.B. Du Bois speaking there. Mm. Or uh, even we have a Carnegie Library that's on campus. And I was reading while digitizing our first student newspaper, the Howard Journal, I was reading about how Andrew Carnegie paid for the building of that library. And the back and forth about how that library needed to be built and what it should house and how it should look and just the involvement of the students in that 
or in the involvement of the students in the uh, suffrage movement. And even talking about the development of the fraternities and the sororities. I'm wearing my colors today because I am an alpha and Martin Luther King was a member oh, of Alpha Phi Alpha. Nice. And Alpha Phi Alpha Beta Chapter was the first uh, African-American fraternity founded on an HBCU campus in 1907. And so, you know, that was founded at Howard University. And so, you know, we talk about, when I talk about history, there's so many different people who come from HBCUs who've made just great contributions to the world. And so it just comes up randomly. I mean, we were watching This Is Us and the actress who plays Beth graduated from Howard. And right. so I was sitting there with someone and I said, you know, she graduated from Howard. And they were like, oh, really? And I'm like, yeah. And so, you know, it it pops up, you know, all over the place. And even, uh, you know, every once in a while, I'll see somebody from Coppin and I'll be like, ooh, <laughs> you know, but I just think, uh, and more so Howard, because Howard, you know, they used to call it the great national Negro university. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's kind of why Howard has such a prominent face. It was uh, founded by Oliver Otis Howard to educate uh, black professionals. He said that he wanted it to create black professionals because Oliver Otis Howard, who's the namesake of Howard, not the founder, there are about 17 founders, 17, 19 founders, but he's the namesake. And he said that he believed that in three years, racism would disappear. And so he said Black people would need professionals to serve the Black community. And so he believed that Howard should be a place to develop those Black professionals who would serve the Black community. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's kind of where it started. And then you have the students kind of pushing and cajoling and turning Howard into a Black university, as they call it. And, but then you also have this sort of, and that's why I love just talking about Howard history. So you pulled the cord and that, that's what talking. we're looking for. Uh, we're looking I, actually for. Wrote a book about, I actually wrote a book about uh, Howard University and its support of the military called okay. Howard University and the World Wars. And it's actually a book about sort of black involvement with the military through the lens of Howard. Okay. Because Howard is in Washington. It was chartered by the federal government. And so the students have had a, have sort of always had an interest in and a connection with the federal government. Mm. And the university started to get a federal appropriation in 1930. And so that tied the university a little closer to the federal government. And so I talk about how the students supported the military, how they fought to get the first officer training camp in Fort Des Moines for African-Americans in the 1910s, how they basically turned the campus over to the War Department in 1918, 1919 for military training. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I just talk about all of the areas when I'm talking about, you know, Howard in my home, I talk about all the areas that people from Howard have sort of touched. Mm. Just as a point and of, so, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's cool. I could talk and talk. About <laughs> you know, it's a point of trivia. So you've got Felicia Rashad, who is an, is an alum of Howard University as well. And she's also an AKA to kind of tie the entire show in. Uh, one of the sororers of Lynn Twilley Darby, who was just on a second ago. You know, the show A Different World is still one of my favorite shows of, to this very day, which was a spinoff of The Cosby Show, which obviously changed the African-American viewer experience uh, forevermore 
from the time that it aired. It spun off a different world. That first year, it was kind of this integrated college experience per se. After that, the show was handed over to Debbie, to uh, Debbie Allen, and Debbie Allen, you know, all of a sudden gave rise to Hillman College, which was an HBCU experience from that point forward. And it was interesting that she pointed out how in large part, she gleaned these experiences from her sister's time at Howard University. And so I thought that was interesting as well. So lastly, when you look at someone like Thurgood Marshall, and how fitting is it that he ends up on the Supreme Court? And someone who literally helps to shape the narrative in this country in terms of how we relate to each other, you know, in, in the realm of black and white and the, the civil rights and human rights of African-Americans in this country. <clears throat> As we close, uh, just give us a sense of, um, from, a, from a Howard perspective, just uh, why it's, a, it's an institution. We've heard a lot of evidence as is. It's almost a moot question. But why it's an institution of such importance to this country. I'm sure there'll be young people and parents listening who may, in fact, end up sending their children to Howard University. Why is it such an important institution? And why is it so relevant to everything that's going on right now? So I just want to mention that Debbie Allen also graduated from Howard. There we go. So she's a Howard. Well, <laughs> so she incorporated, you know, her sister's experience as well as her experience right. in, you know, the building of a different world. Uh, just another Howard person to put out there. But I think that um, the importance of Howard is really the importance of all HBCUs in that the students that they develop aren't just, you know, the top of the, I won't say the criminal, but I will say that they educate students from every social strata of the Black community. Mm -hmm. Every part of the Black community can be seen at an HBCU, and they are developing our black leaders for the next generation. And I think that that's important. You know, that is very important that they're developing the next leaders and that they're instilling within the values of truth and service. And I know I keep bringing that up, but you know, that's really, that really is what it's about, you know? And that's something that even though it's not the motto of, you know, some other HBCUs, but that same kind of idea that you have to be of service to others is something that they instill in their graduates mm -hmm. and their graduates then go out and develop others. And so I think that that is really the importance of Howard and the importance of HBCUs because this moment has been fermented by the graduates of those institutions mm -hmm. because they're the ones who laid the foundation and they're the ones who laid the groundwork for what's happening today because they built the building blocks that got us here. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. And thank you for the correction on the, on the Debbie Allen legacy. Was aware of that, didn't spin it that way. Thank you for that correction. Dr. Lopez Matthews, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about uh, this esteemed university and talking to us about the, the legacy of Kamala Harris and just what that means to us. It means a lot here at WQLN that you took the time to come on. So uh, thank you and you all enjoy the rest of your King holiday. Thank you so much for uh, the invitation. All right. And so Dr. Kefion Shepard is uh, a pastor for Word of Life Fellowship Center. Again, he holds the, the title also of Bishop. And Dr. Shepard's life in many, many ways mirrors in terms of his, his educational journey, his community journey, his church journey of, of that of Dr. King's. And so Dr. Shepard, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I think you're muted, Dr. Shepard.
I think you're muted. Okay. Okay. All right, all set? Okay, I can hear you now. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank Tell, you for having me. <laughs> oh, excellent. Thank excellent. you for having me today. Tell us a little bit about your background and uh, your educational journey and your occupational journey, if you will, um, as a man of God. Yeah, um, I, I launched out uh, to begin a, a business career, um, attended a traditional uh, school, University of Laverne in California, and um, was running uh, track, was an athlete, and God had other plans. Uh, tore my hamstring and um, <laughs> tried to fight, tried to fight against God, sort of like the Apostle Paul did, and ended up in uh, answering my call to ministry shortly after I was married. And then I ended up going to um, Next Dimension University. It's a seminary out here in California. And um, the rest was history. We planned out our ministry here um, in 2012. So we're going to nine years old. And um, from that day forward, I mean, it was a life of ministry and, and growth in scripture and community service and, uh, and the fight for justice and righteousness. So your work in community, and one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on is that sooner or later you'll come to Erie, you planned on coming to Erie, right. to do some work on having hard conversations around the subject of race. And we're looking forward to that. Your work in community, how did you start becoming involved from a community standpoint? Well, I think, it, you know, I was born and raised here, I'm from here, and uh, I left in 2000. And it's two, um, and I came back in 2004 as a married man with a family. And one of the things that um, I saw was that things hadn't really changed um, from when I was here as a child to where I was here as, as an adult. And just made a pact to say I refused to, um, you know, leave this place the same way it was for my daughter and our children to grow up in. So we immediately got involved in the community, um, and, and, and it was it was it started with homelessness, then it went into um, then it went into, uh, you know, voting and things of that nature for the minority communities. But then around 2000, I'd say around 2008, 2009, there, there became serious issues with law enforcement, well, well-documented issues with law enforcement across the nation. And we got involved with that. Uh, we, jumped, we jumped headfirst into it um, concerning the relationship between law enforcement and, and the minority community, um, doing the best we could to bridge that gap. And then now, over the last few years, um, the issues of racial insensitivity, um, systemic racism, and things of that nature, uh, we've had to become hands-on. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and when I say hands-on, I mean from the local elementary school level on up to the, on up to a city uh, a professional level as well. Um, at the end of the day, it's it's all about uh, showing people. Um, and, I, and, I, and I firmly believe uh, the words of Dr. King. We're, we're showing people the dream um, that we can live together, but these things have to be addressed. So um, that's why we've been so active and proactive in getting into the middle of these things. Give us a sense of Dr. King's impact on your life personally, both as a yeah. bishop and a pastor, and you know, as, a, as an individual, an African-American man, um, a member of the, this, this society from that perspective. Was Dr. King's influence on you personally? You know, it was, um, I used his legacy as um, as a template. Being a black man in America, um, the things that you see, the things that you encounter, um, it does bring forth sometimes a sense of anger and frustration. Um, I recall um, 
the, this, the differences between Dr. King's approach and Malcolm X's approach. Uh, you know, both both great leaders, uh, both died for you know a cause of the movement. But Dr. King was adamant about um, we don't have to be violent. We can figure out a way to work together. We can, and that was one of the things that um, that kind of shaped my early years because as an earlier as an early early on as a young man, I wanted to be militant. I wanted to, by any means necessary, go after it. And, and just listening to Dr. King and using how he walked that balance as a preacher first, as a man of God first, and as a black man second. He walked that line and he was able to bridge that gap uh, by addressing the anger with scripture. And really, and I believe that that's why he was effective in unifying and rallying people around one message because he laced it in the word of God. And, you know, some people say, yeah, but he was killed anyway. And and, and that's true. But I believe that he knew um, that he was going to die for the cause. But look at the impact of his death. Here we are, you know, we're four generations or four decades later, five decades later. And his words are still prominent. His words are still shaping a lot of our conversations. So then and now, the role of the church then, the role of the church now when it comes to the legacy of Dr. King. Speak to that a little bit, please. Well, the role, the role of the church then was, especially in the black community, I mean, the church was the hub. The church was the hub. It was the, it was the launching pad of the civil rights movement. It was the hub for... Um, community empowerment and engagement. It was the hub for, um, I mean, education in many senses as well. And um, now the role of the church, I believe, needs to morph back into that. Um, the church has gotten away um, from uh, from being hands-on, from being, um, just from being uh, deep into the community. And I, and I have this saying that says that a shepherd should smell like the sheep, meaning that a shepherd should smell like the community that he's in, that he's mm-hmm. serving. And if he's not, then chances are he's not serving that community. So I think now the church needs to get back to that because we're coming at a day, uh, we're in a day right now where um, where faith has to ground people. And and it's not just faith. I mean, you can't just throw the word out there and say, you'll be okay. They'll need support. They need uh, they need programs. They need um, uh, just watching our, our food distribution go up over, I think they said over 130% over the last six months. Um, these are the things that the church needs to do. And I believe that then in the, in the 60s and the 70s, that was the church. And I believe that the church has to get back to that now. So on a day-to-day basis, not just during King Holiday, on a day-to-day right. basis, it sounds like the mindset of Dr. King, the work of Dr. King influences the way you shepherd your church, correct? Yeah. Yes. What yeah, does that look yeah, like? And, 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 and shepherd the region. You know, mm. it's like, well, what, one thing about Dr. King, it was, and, and, and if you look at, if you just, if you just look at the grand scheme of things and his words, he didn't just shepherd black people and from Montgomery, from Alabama, or he, he, he shepherded the nation, even a shepherd to the nation. And, and I believe that we all have to have that mindset, especially in the day of social media and technology, um, where, where our words and our, and our services and our things can go viral quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important that we lead with the light, like he did. I mean, he led with he led with Jesus. He led with Christ, and 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 it wasn't just for the people that touched him and the people that he could touch. It was the people that were watching from afar. And I think on a day to day basis, yeah, I you know I, I intentionally wake up, and and this is just me. And I know it sounds a little cliche, but I wake up every morning after my prayer and I say, okay, God, now help me change the world today, however I can, right? Help me change the world today. So. Um, if it's a word, if it's a thought, if it's an action, I just want to reflect God in all that I do. And I, and I believe that was Dr. King. And I, and I, and I go back to the nonviolence because he had every, by common standards, he had every right to want to be violent. But he realized 
that his savior wasn't that way. So he had to represent him in all that he did. I, I try to do the same. Give us an idea in your opinion of some of the misconceptions that you think are commonly held about Dr. King. Saw so something today and it kind of disturbed me. It said that if Dr. King, it was sort of Fox News message board, um, said that if Dr. King was alive today, um, he'd, uh, he'd be a supporter of, of President Trump or something like that. And I think the misconception is he was a conservative man, but he was um, conservative in his theology. And I, I think that's the common misconception. Dr. King was, was every bit of, um, of a proponent of righteousness and justice for all and equality. Um, he was one, and having never met the man, just reading his words and, and, and studying his words, he was one that, that stood for equality and justice for all. He was one that made sure, he wanted to make sure that no one was overlooked. Dr. King was smart enough to know that the, the, today, meaning in his day, today it's black people, tomorrow it can be someone else. And so to say you know, statements like that, I think it, I think it leads uh, aside to ignorance. Um, I think that the, the common misconception is just because he was conservative that he'd be conservative according to what today's standards of conservative is and are, I'm sorry, and uh, I don't think that's true at all. Additionally, I think um, there's a misconception that he was passive um, simply because he didn't go, you know, the route that many people wanted him to go. And to the people, and, and even today, we have people that, that approach me and others that have that mindset the same way. Um, you know, you have to be violent. You have to go take it and lot of da 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 and, and I tell people all the time, this is what, look what violence has done to this nation over the last, let's just say, five or six decades, right? And so it's like you have these situations where you assume Dr. King was passive because he wasn't violent, but yet and still you're not willing to put your life on a line to stand before some people and march and proclaim what he proclaimed as well. So there was no passive or weakness in that man's body. That man was, was the epitome of strength, the epitome of courage. Um, but he, he, he played chess and not checkers. Mm. Let's talk about the pride and, and the potential pr frustration of Dr. King if he were alive today. From a pride perspective, there are certain things that I think about when it comes to Dr. King. I remember watching <clears throat> Jesse Jackson crying when Barack Obama was being inaugurated as president and was celebrated as this new president, Oprah Winfrey crying, and all these different people across the country. And it was, you know, you look back at the legacy of Barack Obama, it's not even so much a policy thing, it's the fact that to, to be able to see someone of color ascend to that office, I'm sure would make Dr. King very proud. I think about the work and the influence of someone that he was very close friends with and mentored a great deal in John Lewis. How proud would mm -hmm. Dr. King be of just the legacy and the longevity and how much influence John Lewis had on this country and all of its citizens over the years. From your perspective, from a pride um, standpoint, what do you think would bring Dr. King's heart a lot of joy right now, or even from the time he left into now, what would he be proud of? Most recently, I would, I would think that he would stand against Stacey Abrams a round of applause. Mm -hmm. uh, she, she lost the governorship, she lost the race a couple years ago, and she didn't go into obscurity. Um, she went into the community, she went into the rural areas, and, and uh, she mobilized the vote to the to the point where uh, the Georgians got out and they voted in a major way, an unprecedented way. I believe that would make him proud. I, I do believe that um, Senator uh, Kamala Harris uh, becoming the vice president um, in two days, I believe that would make him proud as well, um, simply because uh, that was his dream, right? That was his dream to, mm -hmm. to, to, to be able to, um, and he, like, he knew he wouldn't be able to see it, but that was his dream to be able to show a reality 
that these kind of things could happen. I, I'll take it a step further. I believe that I believe that the awakening that's happening in many of our communities um, now, um, and, and the last four years, I, I think that that God has allowed to use it used to allow us to see ourselves. And I think the awakening that's happening in our communities, um, uh, you know, many stepping up to to become leaders in the community and and doing the best they can to bring business opportunities and and and, uh, and raise leaders. Um, I think that would make them proud as well. Based on what you know of Dr. King his writings, his speeches, in your opinion, strictly your opinion, what do you think he would say to the Black Lives Matter protesters if he were alive today? How do you think he would assess that whole movement? Um, His quote, the riot, a riot is the language of the unheard, um, the voice of the unheard. Uh, That was his direct quote. I think he would empathize with those that are protesting because he knows that there's a reason, there's a voice that's not being heard, so we have to vocalize. But also on the, on the same on the same on the same uh, the same note, I think he would caution them um, against the cloud of darkness that wants to come and turn those protests into things of evil, uh, mm-hmm. and things that are violent. Um, I think he would. I, and if if you look, and I, what I love about his protests, even the march, even even the march uh, 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 to uh, some. Uh, he warned them of the potential violence that would come. He warned them of the naysayers and even the law enforcement that would try to provoke them into violence. He warned them that there'd be, you know, people that are armed with, with, with firearms and everything else along the banks of the marching route, just trying to provoke the people that were marching. So he saw that coming, yet he warned it and urged them not to, not to buy into it. I believe he'd do the same thing today. Look, you need to protest. You, you need to... You, yeah, civil disobedience. You need to go there, but be mindful of the fact that there isn't there is a uh, there is an enemy at, at bay that's looking to turn this violent because violence is, violence will soften the message of the protest. So I think that he would say, "Hey, yeah, yeah, this is what we need to do, but we need to be mindful of what's out there and be smart." So when you look at the last four years and you look at the presidency of President Trump, and it's interesting how yeah. you know you listen to some pastors and preachers or what have you that quote Dr. King that one time a year, <laughs> at one time a year. And, yeah. you know, some of the conversations that have come out of the pulpit politically, and it feels like everyone is trying to use the words of Dr. King to their own advantage based upon their own vantage points. Again, in your opinion, these last four years, based on his words and his work, how do you think he would assess what America has been undergoing under the leadership of Donald Trump? I think he would attack it. Um, I think he would attack the cancer that's plagued our nation, um, cancer of bigotry, uh, cancer of racism. Um, I think he would. I think he would um, have some strong words for this administration. And and you know it is not. It's not just him. And I'm going to come from a, from a from a religious, from a biblical, from a from a Christianity standpoint. It's not just him. Even Billy Graham. Billy Graham had words to say about how um, he had a fear that that religion would be married to the political right. And, and what it would do. And I, I, I can't, I can't uh, quote the exact quote word for word, but he had a fear before he died. He had in the 60s, he said, I have a fear that what would happen when religion mixed with the political right. I think Dr. King would take that same tone um, for different reasons. I think Dr. To- Dr. King would take that tone um, uh, simply because what we've seen the last three years um, has been a, um, an overt intentional expression of bigotry. 
And I'm not going to uh, say that I'd be naive enough to say that because one man is leaving office that it's going to end and it's going to walk away. But I, it's been an unprecedented, I mean, in my lifetime, unprecedented. Um, and my grandfather is 85 years old and he was alive in the 60s and the 50s. And there's some things that happened in the last three years that 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 was reminiscent of, reminiscent of what he experienced in the 50s and 60s. That's scary. And anyone who says that that's not, then obviously they're not watching. So just to know that the last three years, that bigotry, um, racism, insensitivity, cultural ignorance has been put on the forefront and not even, not just tolerated, but celebrated. The fact that that's reminiscent of what happened during the times of Dr. King um, shows you that we, we've come a long way, but like Dr. King said, we have so much further to go. And so as we close, or as we move towards closing, yeah. when you do come to Erie, Pennsylvania, one of the things, again, that you plan on taking on is training people or having workshops on how to have difficult conversations around the issue of race, which feels so on time for the moment. You were developing or you've developed this for a reason. You know, give us the importance of being able to exchange when it comes to this topic and why you decided to develop something to actually help people cross over in this manner. You know, this, this exchange, it, it, the exchange is important, um, but I, I'd like to add that the impartation is even more important um, because we can exchange ideas, but if one person's not listening, then that's really defeating the purpose, right? So uh, change happens when impartation comes, when, when I'm able to exchange with you and you're able to receive what I'm giving you and vice versa. This is important because the last three years, the last three and a half years have shown that We've never listened to each other. We've never literally, you know, it's, it's, and, and that's evident by the fact that when you say, um, when you say black lives matter, right, you have to come back with, well, all lives matter. No, you're not listening to me because I never said only black lives matter. Right. What I'm saying is per, uh, pertaining to what we see on television right now, we want to know why is it that it seems like these black lives don't matter. So when are taking a step further, when you say black lives matter, well, no, blue lives matter. No one ever said that this is not this is not a um, this is not a competition over whose life is more valuable or more precious. What one person is saying is, look, right now what we're seeing is this, and this is not being addressed. So this matters. So the last three and a half years have shown us that we have not listened to each other at all, and that's why exchange needs to happen. But not just exchange, impartation, and everyone keeps calling for unity and healing and healing and unity. And that's ideal. I think that's I think that's the, that's ultimately the goal. But we have to understand, Dr. King was preaching that goal in the '60s, and we still haven't gotten there. Why? Because we're still not listening to each other. So the events of January 6th. I know I said as we close, but I want to try to sneak this question in real quick. The events of January. Look, 6th. I'm a preacher, man. You say I'm about to close. I close three <laughs> times. So go ahead. <laughs> the events of January 6th. I think crystallized this conversation. I really yeah. do, because, you know, there are so many things at play. The blue life conversation, I mentioned John Lewis, and when you look back, I, I did a training with law enforcement, and I said, when you look back at the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and we lionized John Lewis, rightfully so, because of the role and, and the leadership that he showed in that whole situation, you look at who they were being beaten by. You look at civil rights and who they were being beaten by. So on the blue lives tip, you know, they also have people slowly but surely they're starting to find more people with law enforcement connections to this January 6th event and then the rhetoric leading up to that event. And so again, with Dr. King's legacy, talk a little bit about what America 
has to face as they watch and continue to watch the playback of January 6th and we continue to receive intel. What does that say to America in terms of what we need to look square in the eye and deal with? Yeah, it's, it's, it's showing us um, that America justifies um, evil when it's convenient. Um, and by, by convenient, meaning that in this particular case, it fits a political narrative. It, it fits, you know, and, and just to see the number of people justifying the foolishness that happened on the Capitol. Well, if they hadn't stolen the election, and I, you know, it's, it's like you if you're looking for a reason to justify it, then you really don't see the wrong in it. And then when you have to shift the narrative or shift the goalposts, as I say, you know, instead of just dealing with what happened on January 6th, you say, yeah, that happened. But what about what happened in July? No, we're talking about January 6th right now. And until America can stop deflecting and stop looking for, uh, as a friend of mine says, what about us and, and stop um, bringing out straw man arguments, then we'll never get to the bottom of this thing. America has to take a long look. There was there was a uh, there was an investigation released by the FBI. Coincidentally, who now um, the far right doesn't trust the FBI anymore either. But there was an investigation that came out about the FBI over the summer. Um, police Department in North Carolina uh, was tied strongly to white supremacy, and then the FBI and the CIA both released that released a report saying that uh, nationwide that's a problem. There's a rise of white supremacy within the ranks of law enforcement now. What does America need to do? America needs to look at these reports and go back to their local police departments and, and, and start man, demand to start making changes. One thing that we've had to do here, because again, I can't control what happens, let's say, in Erie, Pennsylvania, but in my region of Southern California, when I see those reports, I'm on the phone with our sheriff, I'm on the phone with our local police uh, chiefs. Hey, what's happening? What are we doing to ensure that these kind of things are happening and, and being promulgated in our own backyard? What does America have to do? America has to stop looking in the mirror and stop trying to cover up blemishes with, ma with makeup and mascara and look at his natural, ugly self and say, how do I fix this? Mm -hmm. Dr. Kefion Shepherd, Dr. Shepherd, thank you so much for coming on. And always Great a pleasure to talking to you. We're looking forward to hosting you here in Erie, Pennsylvania. Once we get COVID-19 under control, hopefully yes. that will be sooner rather than later. But be that as it may, thank you for your time today. And thank you for having me. And let Erie know when you see me, my face will not be as swollen. I have a tooth infection in my family. It's, it's painful right now. So when I get there, you won't see all the extra. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Your, to your tooth probably feels like my voice right about now. <laughs> hey, we'll make it through. God bless you. Brother. All right. God bless you as well. And so thank you, the viewer and the listener, for yet another episode of Next on WQLN with Marcus Atkinson. You get an opportunity to go to our Facebook page, like the page. If you get a chance, follow us on Twitter at 814 next always fascinated for you to lend your voices to the dialogue. A lot of interesting articles being uh, reshared and reposted on Facebook and on social media, and so you want to follow that to keep up with everything. You get an opportunity also the fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m. on 91.3 FM. Take a listen. Tune in and, and listen to us as well. And we, we're always looking forward to your feedback, and so if you want to write in your response, that's acceptable as well. I'm Marcus Atkinson. We appreciate you, and we will see you next time.